and welcome to another episode of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast. This is John Jantz, and my guest today is Dr. Robert Cialdini, the author of the, I don't know what words to use, mega best-selling, legendary, uh, they're, they're probably run out of words for a book that has sold so well, Influence, probably read it, uh, founder of the Influence at Work business, and now the author of a new book called Persuasion: a revolutionary way to influence and persuade. So, Dr. Cialdini, thanks for joining me. Well, I'm glad to be with you, John. Well, this is a real treat for me because I've, uh, certainly I, many people can say this. I read uh, Influence at the beginning of my career, uh, so I was really thrilled to see that you are uh, have a new work coming out. But I, I'm, I've read your answer to this, but I want to get it on, <laughs> I get it on the recording. Uh, your publisher and uh, uh, literary agent must be very patient. Well, uh, the truth is, I never had an idea big enough to complete to compete with influence until yeah. uh, the uh, idea for persuasion came along. And as opposed to influence, the book Influence, which covers what best to build into a message to get agreement, persuasion describes the process of gaining agreement with a message before it's sent. And although that might seem like some form of magic, it's it's not. It's established science. Yeah, well, we're going to dive into that. I, I really was poking a little fun at, you know, 30 years between books. There's not many people that, 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 that can claim that. But, you know, Influence probably has sold as well as most of the books that came out this year. So uh, you, you can certainly hang on to that. Um, d- describe, because I think you, uh, as a scientist of sorts, um, you take a, an approach that's a little different than a lot of people. D- describe the research that went into this new work. Well, what I did was to go to uh, my own research, as well as uh, the work that had been done by a lot of uh, behavioral scientists, to see what was most effective that produced a willingness of people to be open and receptive to the next thing they heard. And this fit with what I had learned as a, um, uh, when I was uh, researching my first book, by actually going undercover and infiltrating the training programs of a lot of influence professionals. What I saw there was that the top scorers in sales, uh, advertising, marketing, uh, fundraising, and so on, were persuasive. They didn't just count on the merits of the case they had to make to get agreement. They also uh, specified in a very effective way what they would do or say before they delivered their message. Do, do you think in many ways, and, and you have some great examples in the book, but do you think in many ways um, that was intentional or did they just learn some trick? Uh, you used the example of the, uh, I can't remember what he was selling now, but uh, the gentleman that would uh, that would actually go out, you know, he in the middle of his presentation, say, oh, I left something in my car, and he'd go out and, and, and get it and bring it back in, and he found that that actually got him more sales. But do you think that he intentionally viewed that as persuasion, whether you use that word or not? I don't think he conceptualized it that way. It probably happened by accident once. That is, he was selling uh, fire alarm systems, and he um, would give people a a test to take. And while they were taking the test, he would say, oh, I need to get something in my car that I forgot. 
would you mind if I let myself out and back into your house again? Which often required that they gave him the door key to their home. And he said afterwards when I when I pressed him about it, look, Bob, who do you allow in and out of your house on their own? Only somebody you trust, right? I want to be I want to be associated with trust in those customers' minds before I begin my sale. So the premise of the book, and these are your words, the secret doesn't lie in the message itself, but in the key moment before that message is delivered. So in many ways, um, we're talking about altering the mindset of the moment, right? And you, you call those privileged moments. You want to explain that that term? Yeah. The, the key moment is the one that allows a communicator to create a state of mind in recipients that's consistent with the forthcoming message. And it's a moment uh, we can arrange for others to be attuned to our message uh, by taking a crucial step uh, of maximizing the likelihood that people will be focused on the message that they're yet to receive. Uh, a great example is a study where researchers approached individuals, asked for help with a marketing survey, and only got 29% of uh, the people to agree to participate. But if the researchers approached the second sample of individuals and preceded that request with a simple persuasive question, do you consider yourself a helpful individual? Right. Now, 77% volunteered. Because of Why? Many, because, yeah, yeah. yeah, when asked before the request if they were helpful, nearly everyone answered yes. <laughs> then... When the request occurred, most agreed to participate in order to be consistent with that recent, recently activated idea of themselves as helpful people. Well, and readers of Influence might um, understand that you're stating some of the principles of persuasion from Influence. So you would, would, would you suggest that, uh, that these complement or do they conflict in any way? I mean, do we still need social proof and consistency and all the things that you talked about in influence for this persuasion uh, activity to be as effective? Yes, but I think to be optimally effective, not only should we put um, social proof in our message or authority or scarcity or whatever is the strength of our message, not only should we put that in the the case that we make, we should draw people's attention to that concept before we make that case, because that attention will channel them directly to our strength. You have some great examples. They'll be readied for it. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. I was going to say, you have some great examples over history um, of moments when consciously or unconsciously, you know, persuasion was going on. So uh, one that's one of my favorites is, uh, why was the greatest ad campaign of all time the greatest ad campaign of all time? Uh, well, it happened in the late 1950s, early 1960s. Um, the advertising firm of Doyle Dane Bernbach had to introduce this oddly shaped Volkswagen bug into a U.S. market dominated by big, powerful, boat-like vehicles. And they began their, their ads with um, words like, we're ugly, but, 
we get you there, or ugly is only skin deep, those kinds of things. And it just riveted people's attention to what happened next, what was going to be claimed next, because they had demonstrated their honesty. They were trustworthy sources of information before the information was delivered. And people then processed that information more deeply and believed it to a greater extent. Yeah, I wonder what the designers are. I can see that meeting uh, uh, somewhere in uh, Germany <laughs> taking place where they were convincing the designers and the CEO of this company that we're going to call your vehicle ugly. Uh, trust us. Uh, that'll make them want to buy it. I, yeah. I, I imagine that pitch was something. That's right. <laughs> so um, yeah. let me ask you this. I know you deal with this uh, question a lot. I mean, are in some ways, are we tricking people i mean a, a lot of what you wrote about in influence was was really as a way to to arm consumers so they couldn't be tricked right and and i think that more marketers use <laughs> use your work than than consumers you know probably ever so um you know are there unethical elements potentially um through this type of knowledge there are and it's a, a concern of mine uh, that we only use these uh, approaches in ethical ways. Uh, otherwise, we undermine our, uh, our likelihood of being able to get people to move in our direction subsequently when we come back uh, for additional uh, attempts to influence. So it's, it's crucial that we are scrupulous about the um, the ethical approaches that we take. Yeah, and I think you actually have a chapter in the book talking about um, and actually demonstrating how companies can actually undermine their profit long term. That's that's right. We just finished some research showing that companies that have an unethical culture experience big uh, losses uh, to their bottom line. Uh, when those people who are uncomfortable with the dishonesty leave, they leave, and that costs a lot on, uh, in terms of turnover um, uh, expenses. But more than that, when those honest individuals leave, the company's left with a precipitate of people who are comfortable with dishonesty, with cheating. And our research shows they will cheat the company. Right. They will steal equipment. They will pad expense accounts. They will arrange under-the-table deals with suppliers or customers. And so the message is those people who lie for you will lie to you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and you kind of bring the whole gene pool down, I suppose, as those uh, um, better eggs leave, I suppose. Um, so one of the things that uh, that you talk about is really the the important role of location and environment and and images you know that are related to uh, kind of this persuasion. Can you talk a little bit about you know how companies are are you know juxtaposing th images and and things to really create this persuasion? It's not always just a, a sales pitch, right? Uh, so a, a good example. Uh, would be something that we can do within the company to uh, improve our own outcomes. Suppose you've got a, a, a problem that's just been resisting any kind of solution, and you want your team to break out of the, um, 
uh, of the old habits and old ways of looking at the problem. So you call a brainstorming session. What can you do in terms of just um, the setting uh, to increase the likelihood that you'll get uh, a more creative, original answer uh, to uh, this problem? It is to go to a room with a high ceiling because people are more creative in open, expansive spaces. They think more openly and expansively just by virtue of the cues that are there in the environment that they, that they have arranged for themselves. You know, there's research to show that uh, people are more creative when they're out of doors. Mm. It's for the same reason. Big open spaces lead to big open ways of thinking. Yeah, and I suppose there's a tremendous amount of research in the retail industry that uh, suggests music, for example, in the right setting actually can create that environment that you're trying to go for that would make somebody maybe more likely to buy. In fact, it even make them more likely to buy a particular product. So, for example, in a, in a wine shop, if the, uh, the manager plays German music, people are more likely to buy a German vintage. If the manager plays French music, they're more likely to buy a French wine while they're in the store, and they never even recognize that that's happened to them. So in, in, if I'm a sales manager, am I now designing a new step into the sales process that, that we have to have the moment before the message and that that will be a set you know, process, so to speak, in sales training? I hope so, because you, we can get along uh, doing things uh, adequately. If we want to do them optimally, it does require that we think not just about what to put into our message, what to load in the, uh, the frame of our arguments, our case, our, our, our features, and so on. But what we load into the moment before we deliver that case that will make people attuned to those strengths that we have to offer them. I think a lot of people can envision that in a, say, face-to-face -face, um, environment. But uh, is this a step that can be done in a written letter, in an email, on a web page, uh, you know, as a copywriter? Yes, of course. Uh, let's take uh, an email, for example. I know that a lot of the emails I get these days have a little saying or a slogan at the bottom of uh, the page below the, um, uh, the signature uh, of whoever wrote to me. And, and well, we can arrange that um, slogan or that saying to be something that is consistent with the idea that we have. Let's say... Um, we, um, we are interested in getting people to change, right? Mm -hmm. There's a lovely quote that I, uh, that I like uh, that uh, uh, says, the, the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. So it's the idea that we've got to move away from the past. We've got to move into uh, an orientation of change. Well, if I see that right before I open the attachment <laughs> on the email that's going to send me uh, in the direction of a new idea or a new product, well, I've now been readied for that mindset 
uh, as a consequence. Uh, if instead I want to establish a sense of um, uh, that you want to stay with our company because it's the most experienced one, well, maybe the quote I put it beneath my signature is an old Chinese adage that goes, the, the, the years say what the days can't tell. <laughs> so now it puts us in mind of, oh yeah, experience is the thing to be looking for. Well, if that's now the strength of our case, when people uh, encounter our case, they will have been readied to pay special attention to it. So in persuasion, you introduce a new principle of persuasion, unity, or um, building we relationships. Is that, um, is that uh, much like the community building that has really become so important, I think, for a lot of businesses, or are you suggesting it's, uh, it's something beyond that? I think it is. Uh, reminiscent of that community building uh, because people want to say yes to those individuals who they feel a connection with, a kind of a shared identity. And so companies that uh, tell us how they are helping our community and are part of our community get a sense of um, unity with us. But we can do it ourselves. Uh, let's say we're, uh, we're at uh, work and we've got a an idea for uh, a plan and we want to get our boss's support um, we typically show the boss our first draft or our white paper our blueprint for this and ask for our boss's opinion that is a mistake because when we ask for someone's opinion that person takes a half step back from us and goes into themselves it's a separating kinds of mindset that we've now in, uh, encouraged in them to focus on themselves rather than on the partnership between the two of us. If instead of asking for an opinion, we ask for our boss's advice, that causes the boss to take a half step toward us. Because when people are asked for advice, it puts them in the frame of mind of, of collaboration and cooperation. And research shows if we ask for advice on a project, we get more support for it even before people encounter the project because they feel like they're more of a partner with it. There's another uh, example that you cite that's not exactly in this case, but I want, I want you to share it because I think it's a great one for a lot of my uh, small business owner listeners. Uh, I'm speaking with Robert Cialdini, the author of Persuasion, A Revolutionary Way to Influence and Persuade. Um, you cited an example of, I think it was a friend of yours that's a consultant and found quite by accident that uh, as he was kind of leading up to the point of saying, here's what this consulting is going to cost, that if he sort of lightheartedly made a joke about, well, it's not going to be a million dollars, that that all of a sudden what he was going to charge maybe didn't didn't wasn't seen in the same light. You want to explain that one? Because, again, as I, I as I know my audience, I think they'll be fascinated by that one. Yeah. So a, a, a common problem when we uh, propose a, 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 a business arrangement 
is the price that we're asking. And very often we get pushback from our customer, our prospect. Can you knock off 10%? Can you knock 15% off of that? And uh, my friend who was a consultant had that problem all the time. And then by accident, he hit on something that reduced the problem significantly. When he had, let's say, a $75,000 deal uh, in mind, and, and that was the, the, the charge that he was going to uh, 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 propose, mm -hmm. before he did that, he said, you know, I'm not going to be able to charge you a million dollars for this. And then when he made the $75,000 offer, it seemed minuscule. Right in comparison to, to a million dollars. Now, he says it doesn't always win in the business, there are too many factors associated with that, but it almost always reduces the pushback on costs that he used to get. Uh, very interesting. I, I'm, I know I have listeners out there that need to go try that. <laughs> um, finally, a lot of what you talk about in the book, or what we've talked about at least uh, so far in this interview, certainly, a speaker, you know, presenting could could easily add this uh, kind of message before the message. A salesperson could do it, and in a lot of ways, creating kind of a temporary shift. So, what do you do to make this that that idea that you've presented stick for the long term, um, so that when that deal goes back and is considered, or when they're considering buying again? I mean, how do you how do you keep that same trust or whatever it is that you built in your persuasion? Let's say you've had an, uh, a good meeting with a customer or a, a, a business partner, maybe a vendor, uh, and, um, and uh, you go back to your office. Right? And my advice would be to send that individual an email immediately saying, I'm very happy about the exchange we had today, and if I understand correctly, these are the circumstances under which, if they are met, we will be able to have a deal. Get that person who in the earlier meeting seemed favorable to go on record in the return e email saying, yes, that is my belief, that if we have that agreement, we will be able to do business because people live up to what they write down. Even though they may be favorable at a particular point, that favorability can drift away unless we ask them to commit themselves to it by writing it down. Yeah, and I think that's a key step, right, uh, that we have to cement that, we have to keep that follow-up. I mean, the more time that passes, the easier it is for somebody to, to, to kind of say, well, I didn't really agree to that. And, and I think that that, uh, I wanted to make sure that people heard that because I, I find that to be uh, an essential element of what you've written. I agree completely. We need to get people to make an active, public, voluntary commitment to their earlier agreement, even if it was a tentative one, and that solidifies it once they do that. So I know that people can find information about you and your work at influenceatwork.com, but is there anywhere else that you'd like them to know about? No, that's the best uh, place, uh, influenceatwork.com. Um, we'll get them access to uh, 
the, the book that I'm uh, uh, just now launching called Presuasion, as well as my earlier book, Influence. As well as other, other work there that, uh, that you're doing and other opportunities for, for learning more and training. So, uh, Robert, thanks so much for joining us. And, uh, again, I uh, uh, applaud you for another tremendous uh, work, uh, adding to uh, the, your already um, very large body of work. And uh, hopefully we'll run into you uh, out there on the road. Well, thank you, John. It's very gratifying for me to hear you say that.